Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Money is like air. It's only important when you're not getting any. My name is Thomas, and I'm here as always with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking today, man? Damn, damn good. Uh, and, and you know... Well, I, damn good. I, well, okay, so I'm drinking a transmitter, and Ale, um, and it is grainy Ooh. with light floral notes. And, is it uh, or is it a Saison? S-A-I-S-O-N. Saison, yes. yeah. Okay. I think that's how you pronounce it, right? Pretty sure I've heard Beats Matt me. say that, and he knows about beer. When I see words that I don't know, I make up how they sound in my head. It's a Seosin Ale. Yeah, you know the band? They made their own. <laughs> so, so so I was thinking of like uh, recording with you, and you know, we get on, we're talking, whatever, and like right as we start putting this uh, thing on my shirt that says like, ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> but uh, How are you doing? Uh, re- or, or something, or no. I always I, ask you how you're doing. Not how am I doing, I wanted to say, ask me about my tan. You probably can't tell because of, you know, video. I can't tell because of the video compression and everything, but are you super tanned? Oh, Were yeah. Were you gone somewhere? To my roof. Or have you just been like, I just, oh, you've just been, been on the roof? Yeah, I've been working on the roof. It is amazing. Nice. After- Anna is currently nursing a sunburn. Nice. Because we went to the gardens to do some photography, and uh, the sun is a deadly laser. Yeah, oh, my. Dude, it is. I, I remember when, you know, maybe maybe when I was a kid, a kid, I had, like, better skin or something. Now, like, the sun, direct sunlight, like, five minutes of my skin, I feel like it is burning <laughs> me. Like, I, I feel yep. like I'm going to smell burning flesh, so. When you're a kid, you just don't care. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm kind of... Kind of excited about, uh, excited and nervous about the episode. I feel like it's been brooding in my brain for far too long. Um, go on. That's your line. You <laughs> tell me more. But do, but do go on. So, uh, want, want to kind of like lay out some things that I've been slowly obsessing over for, I want to say like the better part of two years at this point. Um, okay. but I want to preface it with uh some some important things mm-hmm. um one neither of us can predict the future i'm pretty sure everyone listening can't predict the future and history has all proven that nostradamus also cannot predict the future so we have not met anyone who could predict the future and so it, dang it it is maybe a fool's errand to try right but you're going to try anyway? Well, so <laughs> so I think uh, what happens is, you know, you can look at the past, right? And this is why, like, history is, like, so fascinating, interesting, important, is because uh, it, it could be instructive to things that happen in the future. But um, it, you, you plan, but uh, plans never quite work out. But things are always better because you planned. Yeah. That's true. Well, there's like that uh, that quote from Dwight Eisenhower: "Plans are nothing. Planning is everything." Yeah, like plans are worthless. If you have a plan, then you can adapt it slightly when things change. But if you have no plan, then you're just like a headless chicken. Yeah, I mean, my plan was to quit my job like three years ago, or, or at true. this point, yeah. like four years ago. God was. It's, it's I kind off. of funny. <laughs> it's kind of funny thinking back to that because you've you've actually been, well, I don't want to say jobless because now you work for Listen Money Matters, but. You have been uh, not employed by another company that you don't own for quite a while now. Mm. At least maybe six months, maybe? At least? So it'll be a year at the end of this month. Oh, okay. So it's been about a By year. By the time this episode I, goes live, it'll be a year. Yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, 
so it's been a while now, so I'm kind of used to you having been self-employed. But I remember before you actually quit, we would have conversations like every three months, you going to quit yet? Oh my God. No, I, would, I would ask Lord everybody. Told me I couldn't quit yet. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to, we're going to work a little bit more. We're going to save up a little bit more. It seemed like, I don't know. It was like, I don't know. Yeah. Two years of kind of having to kick the can down the road a little bit. And you know, the irony Eventually it happened. is that, uh, not like I should have done it sooner, but all, all of that stuff didn't really matter. You know, um, and was it all just like fear? What do you say? What? Yeah, wait, what was it all just like fear? Yeah, I think it was like fear, mostly. I mean, it's it's crazy. In mm. hindsight, it doesn't seem crazy because you know a year of capturing your own efforts, like a hundred percent versus you know, I don't know a, a minute percent, makes a big difference. Anyways, yeah. So, um, one, uh, we're we're buy and hold investors. I certainly am, and and to me that means. Uh, like buy and never sell. This like buy and hold thing. Uh, you know, maybe it's like till when do you hold? Uh, my my gut feeling and and what I've always done is forever. Like, I I bought so Lending you Club. Die before you sell. Yeah, dude. Uh, I still own Lehman Brothers shares and I still own Lending Club shares. Both are a like some total of all the shares, which sadly were were many thousands of dollars. Probably couldn't even buy me a coffee at this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, like, uh, you know, you learn from those things. And, and when I, if I bought them for many thousand and sold them for like $2, you know, I, it doesn't really matter. Um, but well, I guess there, there is something to ask about there. Like, is it, do you consider those mistakes? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure we weren't like saying, okay, no matter how hard a stock tanks, if it goes to zero, never sell it. Well, okay. So, like, so the, the reason I want to, um, no, well, okay. The, the reason I'm bringing this up specifically is because, uh, like as you go through time, whether you're investing in things or making life choices, uh, you know, or building a business or, or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, you have to make a million decisions and, you know, then like five years down the road, maybe you've made like, I don't know, 10 million decisions. And if you were always reevaluating the decisions that you made in the past, they would, they would reach a point where you like literally could not move forward because you're just completely consumed with reevaluating everything you've done. And so right. um, in hindsight, I could say like Lehman Brothers was a terrible decision, buying it, um, not working for them, although that was a challenging decision also. And <laughs> the, the thing is like you, you will take lessons from that you know, when you can't learn it until something happens, usually, at least for me, um, but you have to trust and, and perhaps as you go into the future, you make better and better decisions and then you have to trust in the decision that you made, right? Yeah. So, um, so and, and the reason I bring that up is because we're talking about market corrections, crashes and stuff like that. And uh, I think the gut, guttural guttural reaction or whatever it is that like you want to like, mm -hmm. okay, so I should sell now or you're saying sell in a year or wh when should I sell? And I'm, I guess I'm trying to say never because if you invested and it made sense then um, based on your decisions, then, then it still makes sense. You know? Um, yeah. Does that make sense? We have a lot of examples over the years of corrections, you know, being re-corrected mm -hmm. and all the gains coming back. 
Exactly. And even if you bought it, so say you bought at the peak of this, of 2008, um, you would have quite a bit more money now than you did then, even though we went through like the most horrific recession in, in many years. So yep, holding pace. Yeah. It's like if you don't even see that part of the, the graph, you could be mistaken for thinking that it was a, you know, unbroken line of just upward yeah. trend. So, so it's, it's kind of like when YouTube screws up with my analytics and there's just like a day where it says there's no views. So there's just like this <laughs> giant downward spike. It's and all you over. Log in the next day and they, they fixed it. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. Okay. So, so I guess what, what is the point of reiterating all this stuff? You know, people know we're buy and hold investors. Okay. People know the fundamentals and all that kind of stuff. So, so the point is because um, I want to talk about um, market corrections, bubble, whatever, but and specifically what you should do about it. And also that while I cannot predict the future, uh, so all signs seemingly to me point towards it happening soon. You know, uh, we're, mm. um, I don't know, eight years since the last recession, recession. So maybe we're somewhere between zero and 100 years till the next one. But there will certainly will be another one. And I guess uh, I have been planning for it, and I want to kind of discuss it broadly and how you could plan for it as well. Okay. Well, before we get into that, mm. uh, I have to know, why do you think we are heading towards a, another market correction soon? Um, you know, what are the specific indicators you're seeing? Yeah. So one thing that I... Uh, okay. So I, I haven't bought rental property for, I guess, like a year or so now because none of the, the prices meet my criteria. And I have to buy it for X and the rent has to be Y, you know, all that we've outlined in our real estate episodes and we'll link to them for, for it to be even a viable option for me. And oftentimes mm -hmm. there's other things that, you know, make it not work, but I'd rather invest less but make a great decision than just buy 50 houses as if I could, you know, and have to work yeah. out or something. And so um, none of the prices meet my criteria. And so uh, that's easy when you look at a home because the the deal is a factor of the price you buy it at and the going rent. So yeah. it could be overvalued. The home could be overvalued for what, you know, the materials and whatever are. But if the rent is really high, you know, it can make sense. Um, in the stock market, this manifests as what they call uh, the P.E. ratio or the price to earnings. Okay. And the idea is that a company will earn a certain amount of money and investors will buy the stock because they think it will earn more money in the future. So it's like a, a multiple of what the earnings are now. Right. Right. So if Listen My Matters made $100 this year and you paid $100 to acquire those earnings, that would be like a, a ratio of one to one. Right. One. Mm -hmm. Um historically, you know, uh, the stock market kind of hovers in like the 15 range. 15 to one? Like the PE ratio being like 15 to 20 is like pretty reasonable. Um, oh, okay. And so, and so to quickly give an example, um, you can uh, look at a company like Apple and their PE ratio is like roughly about like mm -hmm. 17, which with a P ratio being positive, investors are buying the stock because they think it's going to go okay. up, right? And how overbought it is, is a reflective of like how high the PE ratio is and like how, what level of like a premium people are willing to pay yeah. for this thing that earns money, right? Um, you know, where Amazon is like at like 200, 
So it's insanely expensive. Mm. And and maybe even another analogy is like you could buy a Honda Civic today for $10,000 um, and it turns out that just everyone, want, everyone wants Honda Civics and they're like super hot. Um, and then in a year, two years from now, you could buy the exact same Honda Civic with the exact same miles, exact same year, whatever, uh, for $30,000, you know, in, inflation notwithstanding, like you would then be paying three times more for the yeah. same thing, right? That, that, so more expensive equals less good, less return for the investor. You know, when you invest, you yeah. want a good deal. So, um, there's this thing called the Schiller P.E. ratio, which basically takes out um, seasonality. Like, you know, in the summer, the market's usually like this, a little bit higher. In winter, it's like this. So it kind of like averages mm, it out. Okay. And and it just tracks the P.E. ratio over time. So the general expensiveness of the okay. stock market. Um, on Black Tuesday, like a million years ago, back in 1930, it was at a P.E. ratio of 30. Was right? that the... Uh the day when the, or I guess the time period right around when the market crashed and went into the Great Depression? That that was oh, the okay. peak, yeah. And so this is the average S&P 500, like, you know, PE ratio yeah. was 30. And then from 1930 until, uh, I want to say, roughly 1995, the PE ratio never went higher yep. than 30. And then right about, and I don't know if you're looking at the same yeah, graph yeah. as me, but right around 2000, it went really high, and we all know what happened with mm -hmm. the dot-com boom bust. Um, so we're now at a point, it's at like roughly 32, where the only time higher in history was uh, during the dot-com boom, when it was like people investing in all these companies that literally had no business yeah. plans, um, no business model. Um, so, so things in the market are expensive yep. right now. Well, I guess the question to ask uh, now, since the PE ratio is so high, are you perceiving the same kind of insanity and you know overvaluation in companies that characterized you know what caused the dot com crash? Mm. So I think that any like many many of the times that there have been like corrections uh it, it might not happen again or again for a very long time like we learned like the lesson was learned don't give people mortgages who can't afford mortgages and there's all this data in the show notes and we i encourage you to look at the graphs and stuff after the fact and the numbers pretty much show that the people who don't have great credit just aren't getting mortgages mm -hmm. anymore um so i doubt that you know 2008 will like manifest itself the exact same way like we learned right. things. The banks are not stupid. Like these, they're businesses as well. They're not going to mm -hmm. make the same mistake. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> but but I think like we, right. So, but you know, I want to point to a couple broad signs and I guess like what they mean, you know, what you could do, okay. stuff like that. So one, things are very expensive. Um, two, there are these really cool graphs that uh, I included and there are like links you could click, Thomas, if you want to look too. But there's really cool one. It's uh, the total debt balance and its compositions. This is like all of the household debt in the United States summed up and broken down mm -hmm. by type. And uh, now our total debt, you know, household debt is higher than it was in 2008. Is that adjusted for inflation um, or not? What is that? Okay. Yeah. And and this is uh, sourced from the New okay. York Fed. They have, they have awesome data. Uh there's actually a PDF uh, every quarter. They perform. They provide a report well, on this, and we'll link to it. Oh. There's a lot of pretty graphs, and you could 
you know, come up with their own conclusions. But but essentially, you, we thought we had a lot of debt uh, in 2008, 2009, or whatever. Well, it's, it's really more interesting now. to me here is if you look at the composition of these um, these graph bars, the reason why the debt is higher than it was back in 2008 is almost entirely due to student loan debt. And auto, auto loans. loans seem to be increasing a little bit. I guess it is a bit big, a bit more of a chunk of the overall than it was in 2008. Mm. The mortgage debt looks around the same, maybe a little bit less. Um, you know, home equity revolving let's, credit let's and talk about- credit card debt hasn't really changed much, but student loan debt, especially if you look at like 03, 05, compared to now, student loan debt is incredibly high, which that's worrying yeah. to me. And, and so the let's- students are graduating with like a ridiculous, you know, more amount of debt. So, so let's talk about what that means. And, and I think that anyone who has had a mortgage or credit card debt or any kind of debt knows that, that it is, it like, is this thing that slowly chokes you out? You know, you, you maybe are making the same amount of money, but you have access to less and less over time. And there could hit like this threshold where you literally cannot make all of your debt payments based on your income because it's grown so large. And so as you approach that time, you clearly cannot buy as much as you used to. Uh, and the US or just anyways, the, the global economy being based on consumption, this indicates that, you know, consumption is slowly being mm. choked out or supposedly, right? What I'd like so, to see actually you know, is Troy, what, uh, if the average student loan debt per borrower has increased as well and, mm. you know, have, have starting salaries stayed stagnant or have they sort of kept pace? So um, way back, uh, I want to. It feels like a million years ago, like four or five years ago, we did this episode on the long-term and short-term debt cycle, uh, inspired by this amazing video from Ray Dalio called called the uh, the Economic Machine, where he literally spells it out for five-year-olds how the economy works, um, and you know we have like pretty charts on the site and stuff. As a result, uh, and so. It's it's all cyclical, right? And generally, short-term debt cycles are like eight to ten years long, and uh, you know, long-term debt cycles are like seventy-five to one hundred mm-hmm. years long. And uh, in terms of the short-term, you know, economic cycle, we are uh, already at the second second longest boom ever, measured at one hundred and eight months, um, the longest being the year 2000, and that was 120 months. So literally a year from when this episode goes live, if, if the boom is still going, we will be in the, the longest boom pe- uh, period ever. Like ever, ever, ever. Ever, ever? ever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, like you could draw your own conclusions mm-hmm. from that. And it's not like because we've been doing good for so long, bad things must happen, you know? Um, but but that is something so we we are moving into uncharted um, waters, and the past right. experience tells us that you know eventually all boom cycles come to an end, and ours is going longer. So either we have you know somehow cracked the code and we're going to continue to be in a boom cycle for much longer, unlike ever before, or something bad is coming, is the logical conclusion. So right. And I want to I want to point you to uh, this image also in the show notes, but but we'll kind of try and describe it. Uh, it's it's that one with the red line. 
Thomas. Okay. Oh, and uh, oh, is this the the bubble? T- this is this is like the the like the most over memed or whatever image out there of like the stock market cycle. And you know, we could talk about like the nuances of the boom bust, but they're like these um, phases. And in this graph, it says smart money, institutional investors, and public as like the sectors before mm-hmm. like a crash. And and basically what it's implying is that like through most of the recovery of the last crash, most people are still afraid and haven't invested their money. And people are only going to invest their money when it starts to feel good and things are doing good. And usually that's uh, getting towards bubble territory. It's already like too late. Like as an investor, you've made most of your money by the time everyone's gotten greedy and yeah. piled in a la Bitcoin, right? Oh my God, now now I'm going to get rich. Well, it turns out it didn't quite work like that. I mean, yeah, some people I was did. actually curious because this this bubble chart always makes me think of Bitcoin. Uh, and that's at 7,500 right now. A far cry from 19,000. Mm. You know, and we could, we could postulate on where we are in this graph. And again, like we cannot predict the future. I, I have no idea mm-hmm. where we are. But... Uh, based on the PE ratio, so how much people are willing to pay for, for assets, you know, for earnings. And, and an earning is an earning is an earning, right? But if people are willing to pay how many multiples more for the same thing than they were a few years ago, it starts to feel like there's maybe a bit of greed in there. Yeah. So on, on this, this chart, you know, uh, my my man crush, uh, Ray Dalio, we've talked about, he created this like economic machine thing and he, he is also the founder of the most successful hedge fund, blah, blah, blah. He created this awesome book, Principles. Um, he believes that we're 18 to 24 months away from uh, a correction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he said basically that like come 2020, he thinks there will be a 70% chance of a recession. Like 2018 is probably good. Yeah. You know, 2019, also probably good, but you know, we're not going to see insane mm-hmm. growth like we did before. And, and then finally, and then I'll take a, br- a breath. Uh, finally, cause there's like my years of obsession of what's going on. Um, and you can go into like an internet hole for, for the rest of your life on this is the, this like China bubble or not, you know? And, um, I don't want to talk on that too much, but, uh, there, there's a lot of like pointing to it being like Japan way back when, when they, they overspent like the, the, the Chinese debt is denominated in dollars. Mm-hmm. The dollar is ever more powerful than it was. So that means their debt is larger. Uh, many sources say that their debt uh, outstrips how much reserves they have, blah, blah, blah. So there are all these like brooding things, you know, and so maybe tomorrow is a recession, maybe in two years a recession, or maybe like 10 years a recession. I don't know. So I guess the question is, what do we do about it? Had you left all of your money in the market, say you were a 2007 investor, had you left all of your money in the market during the crash, it would have eventually recovered and you would have been fine. Right. So even if a recession is coming, do you do that or do you do something else? So I think that uh, I think that if you have invest, first of all, you know, dollar cost averaging is awesome because if you've been doing it 
it, you know, you've been buying as it's low, you're slowly buying, getting to the peak. It, it's almost like irrelevant because the price that you bought at like averages out over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that if you bought in the past, you know, I don't know, maybe there's like a 40% correction or a 10% or I don't know, everything goes to zero. Well, it's, I think that you should keep on keeping on with what you're doing. But I think okay. that uh, in addition to, you know, maybe you pull a little bit out from uh, contribute less towards investments and start building what uh, I lovingly call an opportunity fund. So you're, are you saying people should pull out or are you saying they should just, they should keep everything they have in there and then just maybe split their contribution going forward? Yeah. So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is you made an educated decision to invest uh, at whatever time and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think that you should keep your money where it is or tax implications if you sell and chances are you're just going to be wrong on the time you sell. Uh, it's just going to be a mm. really poor life choice. So keep it in there. But maybe if you're putting five hundred or thousand dollars a month into investments, maybe you put you know three hundred or seven hundred into investments and take the gap and start building an opportunity fund. Okay. And, and what would you do with this opportunity fund? So um, short everything. For for example, or <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's like also crazy and you could lose a lot of money. So the the, yeah. the man that we've talked about over the course of the show, the only man we've talked about more besides Ray Dalio and and me probably is uh, this, this guy named Warren Buffett who obviously stories untold about him, you know, he's like a mythical being. Um, his company, Berkshire Hathaway, now has the biggest cash reserves it's ever had, $160 billion. And people are asking him why he's not buying things. And he has this whole criteria for why they buy things. And, you know, deals don't match all the check boxes for this, then the other. But the one thing, there have been companies that have had good management and good prospects and blah, blah, blah. But none of them were at a reasonable price. So he has refused mm. to buy because the man doesn't buy overpriced things. He buys great deals. And right. so- what happens, and this is what happens, I mean, read about like what happened in 2008, whatever. This this buddy of ours, Warren, swooped in and, and you know, bought Goldman Sachs when they were super cheap and he bought, and he bought this railroad company and uh, the shrewd money are the people who, who actually have cash when, uh, you know, everyone's lost their pants so you can get mm. wicked deals. And so the, the idea is you slowly build an opportunity fund. And I think that it shouldn't really exceed 10 to 15% of your net worth. And then so if not like, okay, you know, we talked about not the beginning if something of the happens, when something happens, you can deploy that cash. Maybe next time you mm. can get ridiculously priced investment properties or Apple when its PE ratio is like 10 or something. So basically it's like, making sure you have a bunch of cash on hand in Monopoly. So when someone has to start mortgaging properties, you can be like, hey, I'll give you 20% more than what the bank could give you because you have it. And now you find yourself with a bunch of uh, cheap houses or hotels. Exactly. Um, okay. With with like the preface that, one, you really shouldn't stop doing what you're doing. You know, you should continue right. to invest because like I said, the, 
the market could crash tomorrow or it could be like, I don't know, 10 years from now. And then you're like, well, fuck Andrew, because I just didn't put anything into the market and I missed the best boom of my life. You know? Yeah. Well, honestly, this sounds kind of like what I've been doing for years, just with maybe a different purpose to it. Um, with my business in particular, and I, I would bet you that LMM does this too, if I had to guess, I have just kind of let the business bank account build up over time. I don't take out a hugely bigger salary just because it makes more money. Um, I know people have told me like, you should probably invest some of your business's money in investments. And I just haven't really gotten around to that. And it hasn't been because I'm like, a market crash is coming. I better make sure the business has cash reserves for that. It's more, I'm worried about, you know, going through a rough period. What if I lose an income source? Or, you know, but, what but if that's for different. some reason we get sued or something? That, that's different. That's an, that's an emergency fund. And, and Laura it's, and well, I also an, have. So it's an emergency fund, but it's kind of like you're, you're almost building an emergency fund for a macro emergency. Like, isn't that what this, this whole idea is? Like, you're sort of trying to position yourself so that you have capital resources available for when the market crashes, which is almost like an emergency. Well, okay, so so I, I, kind, I kind of disagree. And, and the reason I disagree okay. is um, if, if you have set things up appropriately, you know, when you have uh, your cash reserve, um, you have an emergency fund. So you have your cash reserve, maybe it's like two, three months of your expenses. You have an emergency fund, perhaps like 20K mm-hmm. invested like, pretty gently, mostly in bonds and stuff like that. Uh, you know, you've other investments. When shit hits the fan, your cash reserve and your emergency fund should absorb everything. Um, and that was right. really their purpose. Uh, you know, they, they just kind of sit there to do that. Like the, the, the goal of the opportunity fund is not to soak up your tears when shit really sucks. It's when shit really sucks. It is... It, it is there for you to hit the gas and then mm, take advantage of it, things. Exactly. Like it, it's, okay. it's not to sustain what you already have because that's what your emergency fund and your cash okay. reserve are. I guess. So to clarify, keeping cash reserves in the bank for the business wasn't just in case like an income source goes away. There has always been like this, you know, what if something comes along that I really want to invest in? I want to make sure that I do have cash resources for that. So I suppose it's kind of like that, except for in this particular case, what you're anticipating is a market correction. And then, you know, you being the only kid on the block that still has any resources. Because uh, I'll say like Laura and I, like as we've overcome, as we've <laughs> forever overcomplicated our lives, we've slowly gotten bigger cash reserves and, and bigger emergency funds because uh, things are just more complicated. And, you know, if something happens, uh, you don't just like stop your business or stop all the good things you're doing. Because, yeah. you know, uh, you, you like couldn't anticipate whatever. So that's why you have like these buffers. But um, I, I bought this rental property for a hundred thousand, a hundred and like 16,000. And, and now it looks like it's going to rent for 1250 or our tenant is turning. I would have loved mm-hmm. to buy that property for 50,000 with the same amount of rent. Because right. what happens is when like shit happens, uh, cash is like vaporized. Because uh, every time there's a correction, usually cash comes in to sop it up, you know, and the market continues upward. And if you look at like mm-hmm. the past eight or so years, there's so many down and up ticks because people anticipate the deal and they buy the deal. And the crash is when there's usually not much more cash left to sop it up. 
Mm. So when you say when you say sop it up, you mean like what we're talking about right now? Like people using their opportunity funds to come and buy the cheap assets? Like so say last month Apple was a hundred dollars and you're like, that is a great deal. I'm pretty sure this next iPhone is gonna blow up, blah blah blah. And then you you don't do anything, and then you sit and uh, it's worth two hundred dollars. Like, ah, I was right. I should have did it. Um, well, mm. if you thought it was good at a hundred, and then you know, I don't know, some news article comes out that Tim Cook has pneumonia and it drops to like eighty. That then the the money on the sidelines comes in to sop up that bullshit story and bring it back to where its value supposedly should be. Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So. Are you currently doing this then? Yeah, we, we've been for a little bit. And I guess I didn't want to instill fear because I, I guess I don't know when it'll happen, but it certainly will yeah. happen at some time. So I guess at the end of the day, like you don't want to come out and position yourself as an authority, authority saying, you know, this will happen. But as an individual investor in your personal life, it is, you know, you believe that it's going to happen and you're relatively confident it'll be sooner rather than later. I, yeah, I think the only things I'm sure of is that I'm not an authority, that I really don't know what the fuck okay. I'm doing. Uh, but I think I want to, I, I guess in my core, I just want ridiculous deals. Like I, yeah. I think most of the, the really ridiculously successful things I've done have been me taking sick deals um, mm-hmm. and sometimes it was because I didn't realize or whatever, but you know, I want to maybe be a bit more thoughtful about that. And I feel like the deals so, are coming. So I know that one objection people are going to have to an idea like this is, you know, what if the market correction doesn't come? What if we never see the crash? I am, you know, wasting all this potential because I could have had 100% of my money in high, you know, high risk investments even, and I could have been fine. Mm. Um, something that has kind of helped my mindset in this regard, and maybe it's helpful to other people listening to this comes from a book that I'm listening to, which is uh, Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea, the guy who started Zappos. Mm -hmm. So before he started Zappos, he started this company called Link Exchange, which was like a precursor to Google and internet directories. And it was like like the first ad network, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So Microsoft buys it for $250 million or something like that in the late 90s. I think it was 1999. And part of the deal is that Tony can get like $20 million and walk away, or he can get $40 million if he stays on for one additional year with the company. Mm. And in the book, it was kind of funny. They call this, this like they said, this is a pretty, pretty common practice in Silicon Valley to the point where they call it vesting in peace because a lot of these founders that stay on just to get that bonus kind of don't do anything. They just sort of coast and, yeah, you know they're just waiting around to leave and, and get their full bonus. So he did that, and I don't know exactly how long he did it, but maybe he was there for a couple weeks, and he started to realize, I don't think I need twenty million more dollars. Like twenty million dollars is enough for me to live on for the rest of my life and basically do whatever I want with. Why do I feel the need to spend twelve months of my time that I can never get back? You know, sitting here not doing what I like to do basically wasting my life just to get a bunch of money that I'm never going to need. Right. So I just kind of think of that story whenever I feel my brain getting greedy and, and, you know, uh, 
perceive my brain really wanting to latch onto the biggest number possible in whatever pursuit that I'm going for. Because in, in most cases, you don't need the biggest number possible. You would be just fine with maybe 70% of that. Right. So, you know, say you put 30% of your money into a cash fund that isn't making you any money, or maybe, maybe making like a, a 1% in the bank or something like that. And you're only getting real gains out of 70%. Maybe that's okay. You know, you know, and uh, so so I agree. And maybe going at seventy percent, you know, towards the end of this run, uh, could mean the difference between a, a crash and and like you said, maybe maybe you do need to use your opportunity fund to literally survive, and it is you keeping a roof over your head, you know, or it is uh, that one move that you're able to make that is a difference between fifty nine and a half retirement and like forty retirement. I guess it could be one move. Uh, so while we're talking about this, you said people probably shouldn't pull the money they have in the market out mm. already. But say you're somebody like me who, because I'm young, I've made the decision to put basically all of my investment money into stocks. Um, you know, Do you think someone like me should move part of that into some more conservative investment investments or you know, just full guns... Uh, blazing steam ahead stick where I was. So I think that uh, it. <laughs> no, I mean, I. I what I, would you do? So, I guess, so I, I guess, I guess. So, so the way that I feel is through all of like really there, there have been hard times and times that we've really put it to the wire and actually don't even have all the numbers added up or whatever. And I guess mm -hmm. broadly speaking, maybe we've done better at making our numbers add up than, than, than many, but I think uh, it doesn't matter what the value is until you sell it. It's just like a, it's. I kind of see it as like this fake thing almost. So unless you need the money or anticipate needing the money, I don't think that it really makes a difference. And I guess my my gut visceral reaction is you're gonna make a mistake. Like if you listen mm. to this episode and be like, I've been thinking the same thing, Andrew. Oh my God. And then you send me 50 articles that I haven't read that that even further inflame me on we, we could still and likely both will be wrong. I, I just think uh you know, Ray Dalio, it's his business to uh predict what's gonna happen. That's where he makes his money. No one listening to the show uh, makes their money off of predicting what what the hell happens with the economy. So uh, don't make it. Don't make that your business. I, I think okay. I think it would be ridiculous to sell. Besides the fact you're going to pay uh, a ton of taxes because the market is up. Um. Okay. So that's true, and that's in taxable investments. Mm -hmm. Follow up question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you can move money from one fund to another within an IRA without a taxable event happening, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So what about that kind of situation? Now, I know there, like, obviously that money's stuck there until you're 59 and a half. So if history is any indicator, you know, a correction is going to be recorrected with the next boom cycle. But if you have the opportunity to not incur a taxable event, you know, is the knowledge or is, is some amount of confidence that a correction is coming worth making moves. I, in fact, I mean, could you almost build a pseudo opportunity fund within an IRA by moving to more uh, conservative investments that would leave you with, you know, more capital in that IRA to then move again? 
You could. When and the next boom cycle. You could. And, and, you know, there would be no implications for you to sell everything in your IRA and just like sit it there in cash. But, but I guess uh, I think that's like backstepping. And I guess I would compel okay. I would compel you that if you feel like say say this resonates with you and you're like yeah you know what maybe some the other shoe will drop soon and I feel that I'm wholly unprepared then that should be the incentive and an inspiration for you to then uh, slash spending and build up your cash pile now because you know. Maybe Ray Dalio is exactly correct. And in 18 to 24 months, you know, uh, there's a massive correction. Maybe he's not. But you know what? If he is, that means you have 18 to 24 months to get your shit together. Yeah. And so I, That's true. I think that uh, if you're like, oh, my God, if the market crashed tomorrow, I would just be fucked. Well, then better better you fix it now while everyone's happy and cheery and it's nice and sunny outside than, you know, when it's not. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the thing is you do want to have an emergency fund and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully if you're doing things correctly, a big crash isn't going to mean anything for your immediate livelihood or survival. Yeah, and, and at the end of the day, uh, I I really want to be clear that um, th- this is like more for education than like a, a call to action. It, it's something mm. that I think on. I think that it's something... You know, a lot of people from, you know, years ago have started investing. They've built wealth and a, and a net worth and they're really excited. And it's perhaps the next phase of wealth building is anticipating the storms. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. So I guess to recap, the signs you've been seeing, things are overpriced, all that kind of stuff. And if you go to the show notes, we'll link to an enormous amount of stuff that will make your head spin. It'll give you plenty of lunchtime line reading while you're waiting for your, your burrito. Okay. I guess one last question. Mm. If I'm going to start diverting, say, 30% of what I would put into investments, um, where would you put it? Straight up checking account, savings account, or like a CD, or uh, you know, a bond that has a guaranteed return? The, what kind of thing? I'm actually glad you brought that up because I didn't put that in the show notes, but it was something that, that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And uh, there is a savings account right now that is the highest out there. It's 1.75%, which is mm-hmm. not great, but it's like roughly meeting inflation. It's from this company, uh, CIT, um, and, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. And essentially, uh, I don't know, you could match inflation, whatever. Uh, it's FDIC insured. So if all hell breaks loose, your money's covered up to 250000 And then if you wanted to... Uh, so, okay. So then there's CDs, which provide slightly more return, but it, it locks your money up. Um, yeah. But what you could do is you could uh, do what they call a CD ladder, which basically um, you put some money in this month into a CD that say vests in a year, and, and then more next month into a CD that vests in a year, and you keep doing that. So say the market crashed, you would slowly, month by month, be getting more of your capital back from the CD. And mm, okay. often, like, so when you're going to deploy, so uh, like the peak of the market is like, oh, but like a week or something, you know, where it's like the highest. But uh, when you would utilize this opportunity fund, it's probably going to span like a year or two of sick deals. So if you don't get it like like on the nose, perfect, it, it's not going to matter. Um, it's yeah. going to matter that you have the cash there. So I would say 
a high yield savings or a CD would be a good place to put it. And it'll be okay. there when you need it. Yeah, and I guess at least as far as this whole concept of a, an opportunity fund goes, something like a treasury note or a treasury bond makes less sense because, again, your money's going to be locked up and, and illiquid. Mm. And it's you know, you're not allowed to use it to take advantage of low prices on everything when a correction does happen. So it's not to say you should never have money in treasury notes and treasury bonds and things like that, but if you want to take advantage of a crash, then you have to have liquid assets. And it is and it is perhaps interesting to note that whether you're in a treasury or a bond, uh, so, so you're buying this loan that, that will return X over its lifetime, and if you just hold it, you'll get exactly what was advertised, given that the thing doesn't declare bankruptcy. However, right. bonds and treasuries also trade on the open market, and their prices can change. So if you buy a bunch of treasuries... You can't necessarily expect to be able to sell them, and you you may lose money, you know, potentially. And so, uh, you have to understand that if like you are using vehicles like that, you got to kind of hold them till the end. Yeah, that makes sense. Not all different from like if you bought a lending club loan and then tried and sell it to someone else. You know. Yeah. Cool. Well, like you said, there will be graphs and charts and extra extra information sources in the show notes for this episode. So check it out. And I guess to reiterate once more on the whole, we recommend buying and holding, mm. you know, solid Boglehead esque investment strategies. But I think you do have a point that it's, it's worth having, having a war chest that you can access at any time to take advantage of things that may happen. And that's kind of how I viewed my business bank account. And maybe I should start doing something similar uh, with my personal investing strategy. Like just have some cash resources. If, if I knew, you know, that uh, a crash happened and you went on insanely hard times and you're basically like wiped out and I could just be like, hey, here's some really uh, almost insulting amount of cash to buy your business because you're essentially insolvent. Like that would be hilariously awesome for me. And I just think like uh, yeah. so many people will be in that position because they're not smart with their money. Uh, let you be the savior and also the one who reaps all the benefits. Hmm. So if I save more money than you, I can buy elements. <laughs> you, you can't afford. You can't afford it, Thomas. <laughs> you can't afford I can't me. afford it. Yeah, well, you can't afford me. I wouldn't be able to buy anyway. it if I wanted to. <laughs> show notes for this episode can be found at listenmoneymatters.com slash show so head on over there and look at the uh, charts and graphs that we referenced in this episode if you want to get a clearer picture of some of the economic trends we were talking about some of the models that ray dalio and others were talking about as well um, otherwise you can find all of our favorite apps and books and tools for improving your financial life over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox so definitely check that out. And if you have questions for us or you have catchphrases for the beginning of each episode, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com is where you can email us or hit us up on Twitter at moneymattersman. Uh, I also noticed recently that the Listen Money Matters Facebook group is actually very active. Ah, uh, you're so good at this. Yeah. Um, so we have been, and I don't know if an ad will have already run by now, but uh, we make mistakes all the time we learn. And we actually have this like really awesome community 
that has been growing and it's completely free to join. All you have to answer some questions. And if you're an asshole, we will reject you. Most people get accepted. Uh, and I have to admit, I'm not a fan of Facebook and I've been getting sucked in um, to discussions and stuff. So if if you want to talk with me or just other people who've been on the show or just other fans, many of which are really smart and do really cool things uh, for their day jobs, um, you should go check it out. It's free. Uh, at, if you go to... I, yeah. Hmm. I was just going to say, I really think people should because... So I've been getting notifications about it and there was one yesterday. I went in there and there was a guy... And he had like this three paragraph, like essentially like solve my life kind of question. Mm-hmm. He was like, I have this much debt from this stupid thing that happened. And, you know, I want to like live and do X, Y, and Z. But how do I deal with this debt? And there's like a lot of different moving pieces to it. And I'm very busy. You're very busy. So I was like, I don't have time to really answer this question correctly or, you know, comprehensively. Uh, and then I looked at the comments and there was like six or seven people who are all offering really detailed advice and life experience and stuff like that. So it's kind of cool because if people email, there's only two of us Mm. and you know, there's only so much time in the day. We can't possibly answer every question to the utmost ability, but all these other money nerds on Facebook can. Yeah. And you will not miss anything if you're in the Facebook group. Trust me, you will know all the things. That's true. Yeah. I I saw that you have somebody who's uh, working as an admin, so it's, it's not just like it's run by the fans. There's actually, I don't know if it's you or Laura or somebody. So, but so this awesome well run. Uh, woman, Sarah, Sarah is running it. And mm-hmm. uh, we also have uh, a moderator as well from the community. And as we grow, I think uh, there'll be more fans who also just kind of help run things. And uh, I, that's like what I aspire to. Just like having this like awesome group of people like minded uh, that mm-hmm. like self police and help each other. Like for no other reason yeah. than for for the good of the dollar, the good of the. Is there an easy URL for that? Listenmymatters.com/slash/community. Oh, sweet, cool. I've I've actually been thinking about moving mine to Facebook. I don't know. It's still on Reddit, mm. but a lot of people don't use Reddit, as I've learned. At least a lot of people in my audience. Billions use Facebook, so. <laughs> yeah, it it may be worth doing. You can't do like Instagram communities. It's not a thing. Yeah. So it may have to move to Facebook. Um, I did get my show on Facebook Watch though. So, and I'm going to go meet with them, actually. It's pretty fun. So maybe I should get a group to sort of like round out the whole strategy. Yeah. Anywho, I think I've said all of the URLs that I could possibly say. <laughs> so I think that about wraps this episode up. So thank you guys so much for hanging out with us this week. We will see you next week's episode. Later, man. Later, dude. Please tell your friends about this show. (laughs) 